Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us, new listeners and old listeners alike. Now the old listeners, or I shouldn't say old, the existing listeners to the podcast will probably know some of the topics that we've covered have included the countryside, farming, wildlife management and conservation, rewilding in particular. And you'll also probably know that we're not shy of talking about some of the more controversial topics in nature conservation as well. So today's episode is a focus on wildlife management and conservation, but specifically around management and culling of deer populations. And it can be a controversial topic for some, but I hope you will find the conversation enlightening, interesting and useful. We can't talk only about the feel-good wildlife success stories. We do have to talk about some of the topics that uh, can be uncomfortable for some as well. So with me on this episode today is Tom Cackett. Tom is a countryside estate manager and he's also a director of Oxen Deer Limited and they're responsible for management of wild deer across um, an area of about a thousand acres of farmland in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. And also quite excitingly, Tom is uh, helping with a new rewilding project called Sheep Drove in Berkshire. So Tom, thank you very much for joining me. Um, It's great to have you on the podcast. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No worries, no worries. So um, firstly, would would it be fair to ask the question um, that there might be a bit of a degree of trepidation coming on a podcast where I assume a large section of the audience are wildlife lovers and coming on to talk about deer control and deer management? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I'm also worried because you've, you've at the beginning of this podcast told everyone that it's going to be very useful, interesting, and informative. So there's now a, an added degree of pressure as well. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I know no, you I, can do it, Tom. I've, I've spoken to you already. You're good. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, that puts me massively at ease. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, even to sort of some of my my friends when you when you say that I I sort of cull and harvest wild deer, you always sort of get a bit of a funny look. So especially to people who are completely in love with nature, which I'm not saying I'm not. Um, I can completely understand why they'd be slightly wary of someone who enjoys going out and um, and, and shooting them and killing them, um, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. But we have to be honest about these things. And hopefully in this episode, we're going to delve into the reasons why that is necessary and why it is actually good and beneficial for nature conservation as well. But before we get into the detail, I guess, you, you sort of have... Uh, three strings to your bow in a way um you've got uh, several different jobs and and uh, things going on so can you talk us through what your jobs entail um and kind of maybe day in the life year in the life yeah um, absolutely uh, so my my sort of my full-time day job which i i um have to remind myself is my day job because my my other two jobs uh sometimes i enjoy more um and i'd prefer them to be my day jobs but my main day job is I'm a, uh, an estate manager for Savills, and, and what that entails is I, I help people who own farms and rural country estates uh, make the most out of what they own, basically, and, and help them run them day to day. So uh, yeah. whether that be sort of a large, large place like Blenheim, for example, um, sort of a few thousand acres, um, or whether it's a sort of small family-owned farm, so I, I help them 
uh, run and manage those and deal with all sort of aspects from staff management to uh, development projects, um, everything. And then alongside that, um, quite literally in my uh, mornings and evenings, um, I run and am the manager, sorry, a director of Oxendeer Limited, which is a very small um, privately run company where we provide deer management uh, for farmers and landowners in and around Oxfordshire, Berkshire and Buckinghamshire. Um, and then as part of my sort of final third string uh, is I'm helping Sheep Drove Organic Farm, which is a 2000 acre farm uh, near Lambourne in Berkshire, um, who are looking to rewild their estate, uh, which is very exciting. Great. And that's in the early stages, isn't it? at the moment it is yeah so very much the conceptual stage of the the owners have made the decision that that is what they would like to do and we're just exploring how you how you do it and what the best way of going about starting is which sounds very obvious and a bit silly because you would have thought you'd just close the doors and let nature do what it wants to do but actually it's as we're finding a a bit more complicated than that i i know it well i'm um (laughs) i'm semi-planning a future rewilding project myself with some friends uh, way down the line but we're starting now and we're realizing it's a bit of a mammoth task especially when maybe you don't own a country estate already yeah exactly well you'll you'll have to come and visit at some point and we can um we can tell you what we've done right or probably more likely what we've done wrong and then learn from your mistakes yeah (laughs) good stuff great so I think we'll definitely get on to a sheep drove rewilding project um, towards the end because that's something I'm, as you know, I'm very interested in and definitely would love to come visit at some point. But I think what I'd love to explore in uh, today's podcast is more about the deer side, the deer management side of, of your role and what you do, because I know from experience in talking to people from different backgrounds or, you know, with different kind of concerns or levels of knowledge, even on on wildlife and nature, that it can be a controversial topic and it can be a distasteful topic for some. But it's a it's a fact of, you know, UK uh, nature conservation that um, deer numbers do need to be controlled. Before we get into why and, and how, um, let's go back to basics a little bit and just talk about deer in the UK. So um, their status and their natural history. Am I right in saying we have six species of deer in the UK now? Um, you have, yes, yeah, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. You've got six species of deer. Um, so starting with the, the biggest, if you like, we've got red deer, uh, which are native to, to England. They're one of the two species that are native. Uh, then the next rung down, you've got fallow deer, which is a, a quite iconic. They've got big palmated antlers uh, and speckled coats. Uh, so yeah. they take, take a great photograph. Um, then the third yeah. rung, rung down is seeker deer, uh, which are uh, non-native imported from Japan. Um, and they're sort of a, a, a similar size to fallow, um, quite scary to, to come across in the rut, which is when they start breeding because they, they have a very strange mating call. And it sounds like a, a woman screaming, um, which right. I'm not sure quite why that would attract a mate, but apparently it does. Uh, and they were yeah. they were introduced into the UK in about 1860. Um, and quite a big problem we've actually got with those now is they are starting to crossbreed with red deer in certain parts of the country. And there's within the industry, there's quite a big fear that actually we're going to lose one of our um, sort of purest and native species, the red deer, because eventually they're going to become diluted by a non-native yeah. species, the, the seeker deer, which have been introduced. It's quite um, a problem in Ireland as well, actually. Um, I know yeah. that uh, I think one of the only kind of 
pure red deer populations left is in Killarney National Park in County Kerry because there's not there's no sika deer around there but rest of the country there is hybridization going on yeah exactly and I sorry I should have said fallow as well uh, are non-native so they were introduced by the Romans and then the fourth species of deer we have a, a roe deer which are the second uh, native species so our two native ones and the easy way to remember it is they're the two species that begin with the letter R uh, so roe and red so Roe deer, I, I think, are the nicest of all the deer species. Uh, they've been described before as the, the pixie um, uh, species or the pixie deer, and that's purely because of the way they run. If, if you're ever lucky enough to see them prancing across the countryside, it, it's a real sight to behold. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're, they're just majestic. I mean, and now is a, is a lovely time of year because they are just about to start uh, their rut, so their breeding season. Um, and so you'll see, especially in sort of big farming areas, you'll see them out prancing around in the field, having fun. And it's, it's, it's a magical thing to watch. Um, yeah. And then the final two species, um, which actually look slightly similar, um, are the Chinese water deer and muntjac. Um, and so they're very small deer, both just about sort of knee height, I'd say. And they were both introduced uh, in the same place uh, to Woburn Park over in Bedfordshire. And they were both introduced uh, around the sort of 1870s, 1880s. Um, and their muntjac in particular have been pretty prolific breeders and have pretty much, I think, taken the country a little bit by storm and almost spread everywhere uh, and spread yeah. out. Yeah, they're just something else. I didn't realise Chinese water deer were introduced in the same place. Um, I thought they were, because their stronghold is like Norfolk Broads and places, is it? It's a, yeah, they, they have spread out in a, in a lateral way. So they were introduced to Bedfordshire okay. uh, at Woburn. And then they've gone east and gone slightly west. So we, we just have a very small population on the west-hand side of um, Buckinghamshire, not quite made it across into Oxfordshire mm. yet, but we're starting to get them on our borders. It's, it's always funny when you look at the di- distribution maps of the different species of deer, because actually they, they tend to be contained by major conurbations and major roads. So for us here in Oxfordshire, the M40 is quite a big dividing line, and you don't tend to get Chinese water deer to the west side of it, but you get them to the east side of it. They just, right. for whatever reason, they decide the M40 is not very nice and they stay away from it and they won't cross it. Yeah, that's really right. interesting. Yeah, I don't don't blame yeah. them. Whereas Munjak are obviously a lot braver because they'll they'll go anywhere and eat anything. Yeah, and going back to the introduction, so four of our six species really kind of shouldn't be here or wouldn't be here without human intervention. And yeah. why why were those species introduced? I guess in Roman times with fallow deer, it was for food and sport, was it? Yeah, and the, the same with seeker as well. So um, fallow and seeker were, were introduced originally for food and then reintroduced at various points because, uh, especially in the Elizabethan times, people, people made deer parks around big stately homes, which were essentially um, uh, sort of the, the first versions of livestock farms, I suppose. And yeah. it was it was where nobility could have their their deer park, and they could either go out and hunt them on horseback if they wanted to, or they could instruct someone to go out and shoot one with a bow and arrow uh, because they wanted one for the dinner table. Uh, so yeah. that's that's where those two species came in, and the reason those two species were imported was because they looked different to the native species we had, and therefore it was very obvious if you were a royalty and you had a deer park with one of these species in them that you had so incredible power and wealth and enough power and wealth to be able to import deer from overseas 
So it was almost a status symbol. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Wow. And then what about the munchak in Chinese water deer? Was that more kind of ornamental or like the kind of Victorian hobbyist type thing? Or So I, I was told, and I seem to vaguely remember, and I, I might be entirely wrong on this, that the not the current Duke of Bedford and not even the, his father, but his grandfather imported them from overseas uh, from sort of the Asiatic countries because they were, uh, they were under threat in their native countries. And he was a big... <laughs> Uh, conservationist and so he imported them here to the UK and they were originally captive species but have inevitably escaped um, and yeah. started to uh, populate themselves throughout the UK. And done very well in the case of the Munjack. They're popping yeah, up everywhere, well. right? Yeah, yeah. I'm always, always amazed where, where they get yeah. to. Well, they've um, they've reached Ireland and it wasn't on, you know, uh, Stena ferries or whatever, but someone has decided in their wisdom to, to bring them to Ireland as well because they've shown up on the East Coast in County Wicklow and things yeah. uh, where if, there's a big deer population. So, If you look on the British um, Deer Society website, they do population maps and you can see where sort of populations are gradually spreading, but then you'll suddenly see an area of the country that's never had Munchak before will just suddenly have one random dot right in the centre of it and you think, there's no way that deer has, has walked or run its way up there. Someone has, has bundled it in the back of the car and given it a helping hand. So I'm sure there are people out there we have to thank for um, for spreading them around the country. Yeah, well, it depends on your viewpoint if you want to thank those people or if you want to curse those people, I think, yeah. because let, let's move on to the, the problems um, that we face. Number one with, uh, I guess, new species of deer or relatively new species of deer in our ecosystems but also the numbers. So um, do you want to talk about the uh, the issue that we have now with six species of deer, four are not native, and I guess the big elephant in the room is that uh, they have no natural predators, right? Yeah. So we've got the highest number of wild deer in the UK that we've ever had. They're estimated to be over 2 million deer of, of all the different species in the UK, uh, which is the highest number for over sort of 1,000 years. Uh, and they, they cause a huge amount of damage to our countryside and our, our, our natural spaces around us. So whether that be to farming crops or, or whether it more importantly be to, to trees and woodland, um, which, which most of the deer inhabit. And unfortunately, they're not doing anything, uh, that's not natural, but unfortunately they're doing it in such large numbers and with such little control that it causes such a large amount of damage. Um, and as you say, with, Unfortunately, because of human intervention in three different ways, in terms of firstly, we've removed all of any potential uh, carnivores that would have eaten them. We've then introduced yeah. another four species uh, of deer. And then thirdly, we've, we've basically stopped controlling the deer or stopped keeping them in deer parks and released them out into the countryside that they... I'm struggling to, to you not to to refrain from using too dramatic language, uh, but they're basically sort of running amok in the in the countryside um, and um, causing huge amounts of damage. Yeah, yeah, and I think as well, just thinking about you know native versus non-native and invasive species, the four species that are not native here do have a detrimental impact on the ecosystem because our ecosystem didn't evolve with them there in the first place, right? No, and they. So. They, they eat and feed and live in very different ways to how our natural habitat is, is supposed to survive. So yeah. if, if you talk to professional foresters, they get very worried, particularly about um, 
fallow deer and muntjac deer because fallow deer are, are herding species which neither or sorry row uh, row or not red are but more so in highlands and big open habitats whereas fallow will herd in woodlands yeah. so if you've got a, a young uh, woodland plantation or even if you've got a woodland that is just naturally regenerating if you get a huge herd of fallow deer in there they will just absolutely clear the forest floor of any kind of undergrowth whatsoever any natural regeneration and yeah. I, we've got some woodlands near us where if you go into them they've just been decimated and you know once the the current standing veteran trees die there is going to be absolutely no understory to come and replace it and afterwards um and the same with with muntjac again they're, they're such prolific breeders they're the only deer species that breed 24 7 all year round uh, and they i mean as i said if you look at the population maps you only have to look at that and the number of them in the uk that they are so prolific that they're just capable of completely decimating habitat. And I think because muntjac are so um, nocturnal, secretive, solitary, they go unnoticed, don't they? So most people, a lot of people don't even know they exist. Um, right. But uh, a lot of, also, I think you just don't hear about the damage they do unless you're in kind of conservation circles or, or woodland management circles or indeed deer management um, circles. But they do an incredible amount of damage, um, as you say, to woodland and things, don't they? They they do, and it's 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 hard to believe as well because I I remember when I first sort of started getting into all of this, someone was saying to me, "Oh, well, the the deer have caused a huge amount of damage to to the woodland habitat," and you your instinct reaction is, "Well, how? They're they're only a small little deer. What what could they possibly do? Surely there's no harm to them uh, eating eating a few little bugs and grubs and shrubs and bits and pieces here there, but." Yeah. As, as I said, if, if that, that deer is, is eating, if you sort of humanized it three square meals a day, um, and there's four or five deer in the woodland, that, that's quite a lot of greenery they're consuming 365 days a year, which they yeah. otherwise wouldn't have been consumed if those deer weren't there in the first place. That's it. And I think it's about as well, like what they're preferring to browse on. So they're preferring oftentimes young, growing, you know, tree saplings and things that are the next generation of trees. So the effect of them, grazing now isn't going to be seen for potentially decades right yeah and it as i said you you sort of think well surely how much damage could they be doing but it it's the added damage on top of the existing species we already have so our natural habitat and our woodlands can support the native species we already have but then when you go and add another four species on top of that that that's quite an ask of any natural environment to, to suddenly support and that therefore yeah. it naturally you're going to have consequences with it yeah yeah so what this boils down to i guess is you know the the unpalatable truth to some is that deer numbers do need to be controlled if we're going to manage our landscapes manage our habitats for our native species and for you know species that are under threat and declining already um we've had massive biodiversity loss we've had um you know serious contraction of of green spaces and urbanization and things so it's really important that we do uh, manage these these spaces well. And deer control, unfortunately, for some is is part of that. And it's done by shooting in the main. Would, it be, would that be right? Yeah, entirely, entirely done by shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why is that? Why is shooting the preferred method? Because I have heard some people, we'll get on to an example in a minute, but I have heard some people advocating or petitioning for like, contraception for deer and more humane methods or relocate <laughs> translocation to other areas and things why is shooting the solution tom 
Um, well, I think if, if you look at what other countries have trialed, so New, New Zealand at the moment are making a big effort to wipe out all of their non-native invasive species. So yeah. at the moment, they're consulting on tar, which are a, a sort of mountain goat that was imported to the country purely for sporting purposes. Um, and the, the natural right. population in, in New Zealand have, have thrived to the point where the New Zealanders now sort of say, well, perhaps we ought to be getting rid of them. And they've, they've done the same with other species before. And because of the, the scale of New Zealand and the, how sparsely populated it was, I can't remember which species it was prior to the tar, but they decided they were going to poison them. So they would literally fly over with a plane or a helicopter and drop poison blocks out over known habitats wow. and say, right, job, job done. We'll, that's the species wiped out as far as they're concerned. But of course, that has a huge detrimental impact on everything in that habitat because the poison leaches into watercourses. It will get consumed by species it's not supposed to be consumed by. And even if it does get consumed by the species you're hoping it gets consumed by, you've then got rotting corpses either, it, again, in watercourses or that rotting corpse gets eaten by something else and then that poison, if it's if it's too potent, ends up again then infecting a, a secondary animal. So yeah. I, I don't think poison is, is the answer here in the UK. No. In terms of relocate, capture and relocation, I, I have a difficult enough job hunting animals from afar and shooting them, let alone getting close enough to trap one and relocate it. Yeah. And I, I think, and it's going to sound really strange coming from someone who, who shoots them, but I, I think there are huge ethical problems with potential problems with tra trapping something in a cage and distressing it that much and relocating it somewhere else. And well, and I, I think in my experience as a vet, uh, treating wildlife, deer are the worst patients and they are such a stressy animal. It's very inhumane actually to capture them physically and confine them physically and stress them out even for a short period of time in captivity yeah. and handling of any kind can actually um kill them in the long term um because they suffer something called capture myopathy i'm not sure if you've heard of that but mm. basically their their muscles send out all these inflammatory compounds and things when they're stressed and when they're um being being restrained and they very often don't survive if you've uh, too much handling going on so i totally yeah. agree with you there that is a, a an ethical issue um, of trying to capture I, wild deer. I'm, I'm not sure where you'd relocate them to either. I, I, it's, it's a man-made problem, and unfortunately this might be a very simplistic way of looking at it. I, I don't think we can engineer another solution to the problem we've made. We, we can't just shuffle this problem off by saying, okay, fine, let's scoop up all the deer in the UK and we'll dump them in. I'm in a refuge. I, you will dump them all in Ireland. Let's put them there because you're just you're just relocating that problem to somewhere else. And it's not these deer's fault that we've removed all their predators and we've overpopulated the UK with deer. So it's to my mind, it's just a problem we we have and we have to learn to gently manage and deal with because of the faults of our forefathers. Um, yeah, for creating this problem. Um, yeah. And what about the contraception suggestion? I say so I. I don't even know where to start with that. I mean, I'm I'm not a vet, but I, I don't know how you'd go about doing it without, again, without sort of trying to get all of the population to ingest some kind of chemical that uh, made them infertile. And again, then you're yeah. you're then you're wiping out a species that doesn't necessarily have to be wiped out. All we're talking about here is is controlling and managing a population. We don't. I personally would hate to see any of the deer species in the UK go extinct. I think they're all wonderful in their own different way. Yeah. Yeah. So I uncontrollably 
making them all infertile fills me with horror. But I, yeah, I think it's been suggested before as like a way of controlling, but it's entirely impractical. Mm. Um, most of the contraceptive implants, number one, they're not licensed for use in deer. Um, so they, some of them may be harmful to the deer. Yeah. Um, number two, you're not going to be able, they're usually an implant. So you would either need to, again, capture the deer and implant them with this and then tag them so you know which ones you've implanted already or dart these implants somehow into them. And you know how hard it is to yeah. stalk individual deer um, or deer <laughs> numbers en masse. And also, like you said, with the chemicals, like if it was poison, these contraceptive contraceptive hormones are in their system or chemicals are in their system and they will they will build up in the food chain you know if there are dead deer around and, and being scavenged by our important and iconic birds of prey for example you know golden eagles white-tailed sea eagles in scotland and mm. um, there could be devastating impacts of using chemicals in our wildlife populations to uh, to control them so i think yeah. we have arrived at a um you know, we've arrived before, but even in this episode, I hope that we've arrived in kind of a logical discussion that actually shooting is the only practical and humane um, way of, of controlling their numbers. Um, some people might disagree, you know, that should we control their numbers at all? I think if you care about conservation and the wider health of our habitats and our native biodiversity, they do need to be uh, they do need to be controlled. Um, we've talked about, you know, what would happen habitats if they're not controlled. We've talked about um, a little bit about what would happen to kind of other wildlife. You know, if we're taking out the diversity in a, in a woodland, for example, we might have massive knock-on effects on lots of other species from invertebrates to birds to bats to everything else, basically, that lives there. What about to deer themselves? So are there any issues, you know, that the, the, excuse me, the deer suffer with um, overpopulation? Yeah, so areas where we have, uh, so where I work uh, in terms of Oxen Deer Limited, we we often, particularly here in Oxfordshire, there are a lot of people um, who have moved out of London, uh, bought houses uh, with land around them uh, because they've, they've realised the, the pace of London life is too much for them. They want to live the sort of rural um, uh, life going forward and yeah they've done and of course when they've moved out here they've been absolutely amazed to have deer on their doorstep and if there was someone there controlling the deer before they've immediately kicked them off because they've gone how dare you shoot these wonderful creatures yeah uh, and they've sort of protected them and then very quickly after a couple of years either the numbers have got out of control and they suddenly think oh god what have we done or they still and all their hydrangeas have been eaten yeah yeah, and their rose bushes and their apple trees, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah they very very quickly turn on the deer, and then then someone like me gets a call and they say, please come and help us. Um, and but what you also see within the population is is you see the carcass size or sorry the the size of the animal start to decrease. So they mm. they're feeding less well, so they they look uh, very different. They're a bit more gaunt. And deer, the best way of measuring male deer is with their antlers. So all of all of the species, apart from uh, Chinese water deer, have antlers. And generally, if you've got a nice, healthy population that's well managed, well fed, um, with and they're not stressed, they'll grow a really stunning set of antlers. And generally, what you see with these populations where you've got overpopulation is the antler size starts to decrease and decrease and decrease, and you start to get malforms within them, so they don't grow in the sort of same typical way they normally would. Okay. And it's a it's a really good indicator um, because 
your eye is naturally drawn to the male of the species because they do have these antlers. And it's a really easy way of measuring progress as well within a herd of, of animals because you can say, well, last year they were producing antlers like that, that looked like this and you, you'll either have photographs of them or you may have cast antlers so they deer all drop their antlers once a year and regrow them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you'll either have those and you can compare them to what you've already got. And if, if they're getting smaller and le- and worse shaped, then you know something's going on with the population that shouldn't be. Whereas, Okay, so there's a, there's a, a reason for uh, the kind of obsession with, you know, heads and antlers yeah. and, um, and and things like that because it's actually an indicator of the health of the population you're managing yeah yeah it's it's a it's an indicator of, of age as well so that generally the the older a deer the to a point the bigger their set of antlers will get and the more magnificent they get until they reach a certain point and it's called going backwards where basically the deer's sort of natural oomph is it's run out of gas basically and and, he, and it, it will start to gradually get smaller and smaller yeah they're generally thicker but actually less tall from their heads as they get older um and you start to see them age basically so that uh, for me, antlers on on my wall um, are not me celebrating the the death of something because that is just a really sort of gruesome thought. It, if you've got them, it, it's to be able to compare what's happening year to year to year with the species um, and actually track it and be able to try and manage it in a in a way that produces better and better animals for the population. Yeah, because I think some um, kind of cynical opinions, and I have friends in this camp, you know, who mm. criticise, you know, the British or the Irish Deer Society. You know, it sounds like it's so pro-deer and everything. But most deer hunters, stalkers, um, management uh, professionals that I know, and I do know a few, do take a lot of pride in managing the population for health and well-being and balance with the with the natural habitat. Um, I think that will come as a maybe a surprise to some, but some people find that a bit of a hard pill to swallow. But that makes a lot of sense what you're saying about, you know, why you why you uh, are obsessed with the heads and, and the antler quality and things like that is it is a biological indicator of animals being in their prime and, and populations being kind of healthy and sustainable, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, it will probably surprise a lot of people um, to hear this, but when I do shoot a deer, I have my my gut turns, it, it flips, and there is no part of me that celebrates the death of that animal. And for me, it, it's not a, it's not an enjoyable experience. The the lead up to it, I enjoy. I enjoy the sort of um, the stalking and the watching of, of an animal in its, its in its habitat. But the actual act of killing it is, is horrible. Um, and I do it as a as a necessity, partly because that's how I choose to get my meat, and partly because I I would li- I like to play an active role in the management of the population. So putting an animal. You're not a bloodthirsty monster, Tom, is what you're saying. Uh, no, I, I wanted to get that across because I was really worried. I, I thought at the beginning of this podcast, all I've done is rant and rave about these four, four extra species of deer and how terrible they are. So I thought I had to redeem myself somewhere. Yeah. Um, but so then putting a set of antlers on the wall that remind me of that moment that I've killed something, would it, it's just completely illogical. The, the only reason I have them there on the wall is to remind me that I've taken that animal for a reason and hopefully it, it's for the betterment of the population that's left. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I can understand why some people, you know, are like, you can't kill things and it, claim to be a conservationist, but it's not it's not black or white. No, and I, I, I think there definitely are people within the hunting, shooting, fishing, deer stalking fraternity who, who probably do enjoy it for the bloodthirsty side of it. And yeah, I, I won't I won't defend them. And I will fully acknowledge that they are there. 
um, that is unfortunate. Um, and I, I try my hardest not to be associated with people like that. But unfortunately, as with anything in life, you always get bad eggs. Yeah. Um, well, look, before we go down the route of trophy hunting and all sorts of things, um, talking about populations, someone um, I spoke to a while back said, which kind of startled me, deer are quite prolific. And he said, um, if they're uncontrolled, most of them can double their population in about three years. Would that be mm. right? Yeah. So um, red deer, seeker deer, fallow deer. Um, well, so I, I was about to go through the different species, but I don't need to. All of the species can have twins um, if they um, yeah. if, if, have enough feeding. If, and if, yeah, if the circumstances allow. And what's really interesting is, is fallow deer actually are probably the most, I would say, the most intelligent of all the species, but also one of the most resilient. Yeah. And fallow deer have an amazing ability that if they feel their population is under stress, they will actually um, have a much higher breeding success rate. Uh, and also they will breed more twins and more triplets in a year than they will singles if they feel the population is under threat. So they, they sort of react in a slightly oh. strange way to any kind of pressure. So you do actually have to be quite careful when you're culling a species like fallow that they don't react in completely the opposite way. And if you're if you're really trying to work quite hard to reduce the population, you can sometimes end up causing the exact opposite. Where actually, population explosion. Yeah. So is that you mean under threat from like predation effect rather than um, natural resources running out? Because that would be counterproductive. Yeah. So I know. Yeah. As in man-made uh, pressure. So, okay. So again, yeah. near us, we, we have a herd of fallow deer that... Um, uh, on a on a farm near us that we control uh, and they also live on a neighboring farm and the, the neighboring farm has made a real effort to try and wipe them off the face of the earth um, much to my disgust and the deer have, have adapted to that by firstly becoming nocturnal so they've figured out that if they're actually awake at night then they're safe because no one's out shooting them mm. and, sec- and secondly their numbers have trebled i would say in the as your friend said in sort of a couple of years because again they've just reacted wow. to this stimulus and gone we have got to breed uh, to protect ourselves, and it's had completely the opposite effect to what the um, neighbouring farmer wanted. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, moving away for a second from you mm. know man-made control or control by humans, one of the kind of emerging debates, and I think it's going to just continue to to uh, roll on, is in the field of rewilding, which obviously you and I are both interested in. We'll talk to you to, about that in in a second, but. Um, one of the arguments that that's always coming up and is being debated all the time and I think is going to be bigger and bigger is why don't we then, if we're going to rewild certain areas like, for example, the highlands of Scotland where there's several large-scale um, rewilding projects and deer are a massive issue in terms of regeneration of the landscape um, and graze, overgrazing, why don't we reintroduce uh, the once native predators that we had in our ecosystems that would control the deer themselves, namely wolves and lynx um there's a lot of proponents of rewilding that say we got rid of lynx and wolves and that's part of the problem so we need to bring them back what are your thoughts on that approach i i have such mixed feelings about it because part of me would love Mm. to drive drive down the road or go for a walk in the countryside and see a lynx a wolf or even a bear off often the often the distance um 
in, in the wild in the UK. Part of me would feel, be filled with so much excitement at the prospect of that. But the other part of me, perhaps the more sort of rational side of me says, well, I'm not sure how you'd get the UK population to adjust to, at the moment, we can go for a walk, we could go out and camp in a field in the middle of nowhere and have absolutely no concerns. The, the human population. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're suddenly then saying, oh, well, they're, they're going to be, they're potentially bears and wolves out there. I'm not sure people would, how people would feel about that. Um, and particularly in the farming community, that there'd have to be quite a big change to, to agriculture um, to allow that to, to take place. Otherwise, you'd have people's livelihoods very quickly wiped off the, the face of the earth by one wolf pack going through the farm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and finally, I, I, I think we as, as humans have, have already meddled with our ecosystem so much in terms of removing all these carnivores, then replacing them with loads of herbivores, then increasingly urbanizing, planting other species that are non-native to the UK, uh, in, then I, I can't see how we get, I don't think it's as simple to get back to what we want to just by shoving another species in and going, there we go, we've put back what we took out in the first place, it's all going to be okay again. I yeah. I, uh, I it's a very romantic way of looking at it and as i said i would love in some ways love it to happen but it worries me at the same time yeah that's understandable and i think most most people um you know know it's not a, a black or white there's gray areas in that yeah. i think um you know we look at the scottish wildcat is uh you know dying out and lots of the kind of natural predators that we have had and clinging on are still kind of struggling or low in numbers it does seem in some ways a bit foolish to try and like wedge a real massive apex predator back into a system that's already stretched and a society that's still unfortunately quite distrustful of predators and even if i think you mentioned you know um livestock losses and things to to those kind of predators even if you compensate farmers it's still not uh, a great feeling to have your your livestock and your pride and joy taken out in the night by mysterious creatures is it so no and and as i said i'm I'm not sure how the deer would actually react to it and i know that sounds really silly but as i've said fallow deer for example are incredibly intelligent and i'm sure if you released wolves in the uk yes i'm sure they would they would curb the population to some extent but it wouldn't be long until the deer realized well hang on a minute if we go and become urbanized ourselves so live in in parks or people's gardens we're safer from wolves and you just read mm. and there you're effectively just relocating the population of deer and moving them somewhere else and then you've got wolves running around in the countryside with potentially no food resource so yeah i i don't know yeah that's a good point actually we don't know what changes it would make in our system right now and where it's happening you know in um, europe with like larger scale rewilding projects where they have space mm. to act naturally and that's not necessarily comparable to what would happen here right. even in the scottish Highlands. Um, i think the, the the other thing to mention if people aren't too familiar with this topic is that one of the reasons that um you know bringing back apex predators for deer specifically is touted as a solution is that in large-scale rewilding projects where they have done that they've seen massive improvements in all sorts of biodiversity so the classic example tom which you're probably aware of is yellowstone national park where they brought back wolves for the first time in a couple of centuries and the entire ecosystem around rivers changed because the deer's behavior had changed they were more wary they didn't want to come down to drink you know and congregate in the wooded valleys and all the regeneration of plant life and and insects and birds and 
everything else basically followed and the river actually changed its direction and shape and everything because of this single apex predator coming back so there's a powerful argument for but it doesn't necessarily translate to well let's do it in scotland and the same thing will be you know all rosy and beneficial yeah i funny enough i was just about to mention the yellowstone example because as you say it's the classic example that people bring up and i i remember i watched a, there's a sort of time lapse video of, of a river somewhere in, in yellowstone where it's gradually become um more shallow day by day because the deer are going down and drinking on its banks and basically pushing the bank down into the river and you watch this right. river almost sort of dry up and then all of a sudden it starts to reverse but presumably mm. because the wolves are suddenly introduced. And as you say, the deer decide, well, actually, we're much more vulnerable down in the bottom of the valley. We'll stop going down there for water. And as a result, the river completely recovers. So there are definitely benefits to reintroducing apex predators. But I'm not sure in the UK, unfortunately, we've we've got the space or, or the ability to do it. Yeah, I think this is a, a future podcast episode. <laughs> because <laughs> I, have to, I have heard, again, again, there's a lot of infighting and there's a lot of debate and argument around rewilding big you know large-scale ambitious rewilding like bringing back predators and things but um some of them saying actually the losses to livestock wouldn't be too severe and lynx would preferentially feed on roe deer and mountain hare and things over domestic sheep and stuff so i think there's definitely uh another podcast podcast episode to dive into that controversial topic um but we could we could be here all all evening (laughs) talking about that um was that not your plan, Sean? I've I've settled in for the night. Grand, yeah, yeah. I might I might pour a bottle, pour a glass of wine now, and uh, we'll we'll settle down and keep going. <laughs> um, closer to home, I mentioned this to you a while ago when we first talked about doing the the episode. I run um, Ealing Wildlife Group, and uh, we've got a quite a lively and uh, active forum on Facebook on our our page there. And I think about two years ago, someone shared the documents from Richmond Park about the deer populations in Richmond Park and about the notice to the public about the call. Um, I think they call in November and uh, maybe February as well. But some of the comments there actually took me aback a little bit. Um, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to criticize people or say, you know, this ignorance or naivety there, but the comments that took me aback were the ones where people were absolutely horrified that within this population of red and fallow deer in Richmond Park, which is an enclosed urban park um, in London, that culling them was part of the, their management. And there was people up in arms saying Richmond Park is all about the deer. That's that's what they're you know that's what it's there for. Um, they mustn't love the deer if they're killing them at night time behind the public's back and. There was just a total disconnect between the fact that this is a essentially kind of semi-artificial population that's been put there, especially in the case of the fallow deer, and it's enclosed by walls and gates, you know. So all the all the normal kind of arguments came up about contraception, translocation. Someone even said, just kill them all and then we won't have to kill any more in future and that, that'll okay. solve the problem. Yeah, so... I mean, what do you make of this disconnect that people have? Or maybe it's, I don't know, I, I deal with this all the time. I deal with it when people kind of ask my advice. Oh, there's a sparrowhawk in my garden killing my blue tits and robins. And it's like, guys, that's nature. You're feeding your your blue tits and robins, you know, food. And that's a fast food re- restaurant for your sparrowhawk as mm-hmm. well. Like embrace it. I, what is, what is your, th- what are your thoughts on 
the disconnect and why people can't get their head around the fact that, you know, it's not Bambi and everything living freely in harmony. It's like sometimes we have to make tough decisions when it comes to wildlife. I, I have to be very careful because I, I think once you once you get sort of involved uh, in doing what I do in terms of culling deer, yeah, you can become a bit black and white about it and you sometimes forget that other people don't aren't involved in it to the same degree as you, so you can be a little bit brutal about it. Yeah. So when, when I take a step back from it, I, I can sort of understand it because to the, and I was about to say the uneducated, but that sounds really rude and I don't mean it like that, but to, to the sort of average person on the street, if you say, well, we've got a lovely population of deer in Richmond Park and you say, but once a year someone goes out there and shoots a load of them, it, it sounds pretty brutal and it sounds completely unnecessary because you think, well, why? Surely the same number die each year as the same number get born so surely it's a sort of self-regulating population but Mm. unfortunately it isn't because nature as you all know being a vet sean nature is incredibly clever and its aim is is to is just to keep multiplying and it it doesn't self-regulate to the same degree and the only thing that would limit that population in terms of growth would be their food resources so yeah you could leave that population to self-regulate but what you'd have is you'd have starving animals that would starve to death each year yeah and they would probably be the young that starved rather than necessarily some of the older weaker animals that you would prefer to get rid of to make way for the young so yeah i I think when you start to explore ideas like that you start to see the logic behind why it's done and i again i don't think we help ourselves as an industry because we're we're very secretive about how and why we do deer culling because i I think we're nervous about the criticism we're going to get so the fact that that's yeah that's kind of understandable because i guess and i'm not like you know saying I'm 100% behind some aspects of mm. deer management for sport or, you know, not even get into some other kind of like <laughs> recreational <laughs> recreational hunting. But um, any, any, it's all lumped together. That's the problem I yeah, see is that yeah. all, any any killing of, of our wildlife is sort of lumped together. As I joked about earlier, you know, you're a bloodthirsty, um, you know, um person and you're doing it for fun and it's not sport and this is inhumane and it basically gets lumped in with a a big animal rights conversation of we shouldn't be interfering and no amount of logical ecological theory and discussion and um kind of explanation seems to get through if someone's made up their mind that i just don't like it i don't like to see innocent animals being killed but do you think there's a solution or some kind of way that we need to get back to basics and maybe start talking to people earlier about the realities of wildlife. I, I kind of jokingly sometimes say we've gone a little bit too down the road of, you know, farthing wood friends and um, wind in the willows and um, wildlife being like sanitized and Disney-fied. Bambi in the deer, in the deer example. Yeah. I think we've kind of lost track of actually I, nature and ecology in general. A lot of people don't seem to understand it. No, I, and I think that's uh, that's a result of, of our food industry and, and how sort of industrialized our society has become because yeah. I quite often have sort of discussions like this. The classic is when you're out for dinner with someone or sort of a group of friends and, and someone will say, oh, Tom, um, I'd had some of your venison the other day. It was lovely. And someone else at the table will go, well, where'd you get the venison from? You don't shoot deer, do you? And you sort of then have to have that awkward conversation with them. But oh, ruins your idea. I could, I could, I could, <laughs> well, 
it's normally it's quite fun and entertaining but someone will say i could never imagine shooting a wild a wild animal and you say but you're sitting there eating a, a beef steak and they go oh yeah that's totally different and you say well it is but i i in my mind i see it completely the other way around because if if i was an animal i would much prefer and perhaps i'm a bit weird to think of it this way i would much prefer to live my life out in the wild completely um unaffected by humans and all of a sudden one day the lights just to go out and i didn't even know what happened yeah rather than to wait to to be born into a farmer's barn live my entire life in there and then get taken to an abattoir where and having been to abattoirs myself they're not nice places um to, to then end your life there i, I think it's totally different and so i i see it that way I, that's that's just me i'm afraid and so as i think when people pick up a pack of of meats from the supermarket they don't think about that process and so therefore when you say to them, I go out and shoot a deer, they think, oh, God, that's terribly brutal. But you think, well, that happens every day to put food on your table or to provide you with those leather shoes or leather belt or leather handbag. Yeah. No, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, I've had discussions about it myself when I've harvested my own roosters and eaten them and they've lived a very happy life yeah. and much better than chicken raised and then plastic wrapped in, in Tesco or whatever your supermarket mm. of choice is. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how to get around that. I think we need to start having better discussions about where our food comes from with school kids and start from the start again. I, um, I completely agree. And I, for me, I, I was approached so for my sins and this may lead to me getting lots of death threats, but, um, as a result of this, this podcast, um, cause I'm about oh, to do I'm something, sorry I'm, about, I'm about to do something silly, Sean, um, uh-oh. Through my yeah, through my Instagram account, I I obviously post lots of pictures of deer related stuff, and I I was contacted on there by a, a vegan, um, who said to me, I, I'm totally disgusted by the idea that you go out and you you harvest wild deer, and I sort of, which is again very remarkable for me, very calmly sort of replied back and said, well that that's just how I choose to source my meat and explain the reasons why, and said, look if you'd if you'd like to come with me on a sort of outing, you can see how it's done. Um, and therefore sort of understand why I do it. And, and actually, I, they, they did come with me um, out in this outing. And I wasn't sure if they were going to turn up with some sort of huge vigilante group and club me to death in the woods. I was going to say, that was a risky, uh, risky invite. Yeah. Well, I, I thought I've, I'm quite a fast runner, so hopefully I can just outrun them if it all goes really wrong. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, they turn up and I... I said to them, look, we're out here, the crack of dawn, the birds are singing, it's completely peaceful and quiet. Yes, an animal is about to lose its life, but it doesn't know that's about to happen. And the entirety of it is going to end up in the food chain. And I'm going to know the meat I'm then going to consume for the next month. I know exactly where it's come from. The food miles on it are minimal. And it's been done in a really human, ethical, quiet and nice way. And the animal has lived a completely natural life with all yeah. its behaviors allowed to be expressed. And yeah, yeah, it's I'm I'm with you. I mean, I just think it is this disconnect and it's hard. It's like a bitter pill for people to swallow that actually the choices you're making with your food choices and where you buy it and how cheaply you buy it actually contribute to animal suffering. So, again, without going down the line of veganism versus meat eating is if you eat meat the uncomfortable truth of doing it as a you know consumer with your hand over your eyes and your your fingers in your ears maybe and not really connecting with where it comes from is you're doing more harm 
um, to animal welfare specifically. And I think wild game meat, if it's harvested sustainably and if it's uh, harvested in the interests of the health of the wider ecosystem and other other wildlife um, species and biodiversity is a far more ethical choice. And, and actually, would I be right in saying venison is often a healthier choice than some of the meats we consume in, in our society today. Yeah, by, by a country mile. So for, for me, Why one of the that? great for the, one of the great selling points for me, because I, and pardon the pun, but I, I do sell the venison, some of the venison that I harvest, um, mm. is it's incredibly low in fat. Yeah. By, by um, its very nature, most of it is, well, it is completely free range and it is uh, mostly organic in terms of that animal has never been injected with anything or never been given any kind of medication. Yes, it may have eaten crops that have been treated with something, but yeah. there'll be a sort of a minority of its its total um, intake in terms of food. Yeah. And it, it's just, I personally, I think you can taste the difference when you eat something like that than when you eat something that comes out of a packet from Tesco's. I, I think there is a vast difference in the quality of the meat. Well, very often there's, a, there's just a taste to it by comparison to what comes <laughs> out of a plastic package in the supermarket, right? Tesco's are really going to love you after this, Sean. <laughs> Who are? Tesco's. Oh, I know. I, I said a supermarket that time, so I wasn't... Uh, oh, did you? Sorry. Well, oh, I wasn't they're going to love me then, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I should say other supermarkets are available. Um, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You have to have that disclaimer. Um, look, I was going to talk to you about um, one... We kind of skipped over it, but we talked about starvation being an issue. And obviously, if we have population booms and things, um, you will get starvation. And I think one of the, the very high-profile... Uh, cases in the rewilding community was the Dutch rewilding experiment, the Ostvarders Plassen, um, mm. where they basically decided it was completely hands-off, very puritanical rewilding, but didn't have the apex predators there. And they had deer and um, conic ponies and, and um, some cattle and, and different herbivores there. But they had a, a hard winter at the kind of height of the herbivore population and thousands of them um, starved to death. It was a big scandal, really, in uh, in the Netherlands and worldwide in the rewilding movement that just showed, you know, you can't just say, leave it up to nature and it'll be fine. It's actually much worse for animal welfare um, to do that. Starving to death is not a good way to go um, when you compare it to an instantaneous bullet, I think, um, without without trying to lighten that fact too much. No. Um, but you, you mentioned something similar has happened in the UK somewhere, right? Yeah, and I, I was frantically trying to Google it earlier, but there, there is somewhere down in the West Country where they, uh, and it's it's a um, it's run by a, uh, a na- it's a nature reserve, and it's run by a, sort of a wildlife charity. I forget what, it, what which charity it is, but they started a um, a nature reserve where they basically said we will control. I do absolutely no deer control within the acreage of our nature reserve, yeah. which of course attracted huge numbers of deer because they, they very quickly realized this is a sanctuary where we can go and be completely undisturbed and, and un, unharassed. Yeah. But again, very quickly you end up, there's a, they're finite resources and you've got a population that's natural instinct is to just keep breeding and breeding and breeding. So the inevitable is going to happen and you are going to end up with starvation. Um, and again, it, they had very public, um, it was in newspapers and, and on the news um, stories about hundreds of, of starving animals. It's, um, sometimes what we think is the the right thing to do or um, better for the animals is actually going to lead to some pretty serious suffering, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, before we move on to uh, wrap up by moving on to the, the rewilding project that you're involved in, which I'm really interested to hear about, can you just, for for people who don't know, what is involved in the process of stalking a deer, killing a deer? How is it done? How do you make the decisions on which deer to, to take out of a population? Yeah. You know, what's the what's the yearly cycle and, and how is it managed? Sure. Um, so... Uh, I should I should start by saying deer are protected by law. Um, so there is the, the Deer Act, which um, yeah. is what governs how how and when and how uh, and killed. So there are set species for each of the different deer, and if within that, each of the different females, for example, can only be culled from the first of November. And the logic behind that being that in that period of the year, they shouldn't have they shouldn't and shouldn't have any dependent young. Okay, so. In theory, you can shoot them then sort of, I was about to say guilt-free, that's not really what I mean, but you can do it ethically. And the males, similarly, they, they, each, they each have their own different season. It varies from species to species. But again, it's done in such a way that you can only generally shoot them whilst they have antlers. And the, the, the theory or the logic behind that is that you can then differentiate them between the, the females and the males. And tell, so it's not and tell because, which are the healthy males, like you said earlier, right? Exactly. Um and so for, for me, um, in terms of roe deer, for example, let's, let's take those for example, um, the, the roe deer, a female season runs, so you can shoot them from November to the end of March, uh, from the bucks, you can start shooting them at the beginning of April all the way through until the end of October. So for me, at the moment, we're now sort of looking at starting to shoot some of the males, um, but we don't just sort of randomly rock up and go, right, here's a male, let's kill it. Um, we've probably spent, um, the past three months out doing sort of recon out without a rifle just with binoculars telescopes out watching the, the habitat um and the and the population and, and looking at how many deer there are what's happening to the habitat around it so is it improving is it um getting worse so have we got too many deer are they having too much of a detrimental impact on the floor of the fauna the trees and everything yeah um and if if the pop if the sort of natural habitat is broadly stable then we'll generally leave the deer alone but if if it's if it's getting worse, then we know we need to do something. We need to reduce that population back. So then that's when we start looking at the population of deer and saying, okay, which ones look like the older animals and uh, or the weaker animals or which are the younger animals that we just don't think are going to really have a, a positive contribution to the um, the wider population. So it's, it's looking at, you're kind of farming from afar, I think it was called by someone else. So you're you're choosing which genes you want to be passed on to the next generation within that population. Yeah. So we'd go out, we'd, we'd spend hours surveying, as I said, the habitat, but also the deer themselves. And then when it comes time, we, we'll try and take as many photographs of, of the deer that we want to take in particular or the, or the group of deer um, if, we're, if we're choosing to cull a number of them. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the reality of it is, is, is deer are, and I'm going to say this word wrong, um, crepuscular. So they're mainly active first thing in the morning and last thing at night so dawn and dusk yeah. um which is basically because that's when they feel most safe because they presume we're at home watching the telly or in bed asleep still so at this time of year and my other half hates me for this is if i'm going to go out in the morning i'll go out at three four o'clock in the morning oh wow um yeah so i'm very popular when that I was alarm gonna, goes I was off gonna say I want to come, i was gonna say i want to come with you to try and experience this but maybe i've changed my mind <laughs> Well, the, 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 to be fair, this time of year, I generally shy away from the mornings because the evenings are just spectacular at the moment. Perhaps not today when it's pouring with rain, but yeah, I was so, out looking for barn owls the other night, and it was absolutely glorious. Yeah, um, yeah. 
there's something magical about this time of year. So we'd either go out that time in the morning or come the evening, probably sort of 7.30 onwards. Um, and we do it one of two ways. So we either sit in a high seat, which is exactly what it um, sounds like. So it's a wooden or metal seat that's strapped to the, a chair, a tree, sorry, somewhere. And you sit up in there and you basically wait for the deer to sort of walk past you because you've placed that chair in a location where you know they're likely to walk past. Uh, or you, you hunt them on foot. So again, this is where all yours. And yeah, sorry. Go. With the high, with the high seat, am I right in saying one of the benefits of that is they don't smell you because your scent is higher than them in the air? Exactly that. Um, mm-hmm. and the other massive benefit to them is, is the safety side of things. So if you imagine if you're shooting an animal, nine times out of 10, the bullet's going to pass straight through that animal. And so if you're level yeah. with that animal and the bullet passes straight through, it's just going to keep on going until it hits something that stops it. Ah, so yeah. particularly in a sort of an urbanized area like Oxfordshire, um, unless you've got hills or valleys behind you to, to naturally stop that bullet, you need to find a way of, of ending its its path. So if you're in a high seat and you're, you're shooting downwards, you've got a very safe backstop behind that animal because the, the trajectory of the bullet is going into the ground. It's straight into the ground. Ah, that's clever, yeah. Um, so either on high seat or you go out on foot and you naturally sort of um, just follow the tracks that they go in where you've seen them before because they are creatures of habit uh, to their detriment, unfortunately. Um, and we until we find the animal that we want, um, and then we um, then we um, when we found it, we shoot it. Um, and which, as I said, is is for me the worst part of the process. Uh, I absolutely love being out in nature at that time in the morning or that time in the evening because there's absolutely no one else around generally if you're if you're good at what you're doing the deer don't know you're there so you can watch them in their completely sort of natural habitat doing what they want to do and sometimes especially in the evenings at this time of year i can stand there for hours just watching them because you you just forget what's even going on around you you forget the world really yeah um and you probably see lots of other wildlife as well do you you do and i I was going to say earlier when you said you have to sometimes remember how brutal mother nature is and and things like that i've I've been sat watching deer or or rabbits or something like that and you've seen particularly around here a red kite or a fox come in and snatch one of those animals and and have its dinner and it it does sort of remind you that what you're doing is is no less natural than what is going on in Mm. in in nature around you yeah um so so we shoot shoot whichever deer it is we've we've chosen um you then you gen generally wait. You wait sort of five to ten minutes to de- definitely make sure the animal is is dead. Um, then go over, um, and it is it is. This is probably a bit too graphic for your podcast, Sean. Um, it is it is gutted. No, go for it. It is gutted. Its legs and head are taken off, um, and depending on what the weather's like, you may even skin it on site. Or um, so all of that goes back into sort of back into the hedgerow base of a tree somewhere or something like that. So it all then gets. Uh, eaten by foxes, badgers, etc. Yeah, and the carcass comes home with me and goes into a chiller, and then either the same day or the next day, uh, it will get butchered down a vacuum pack, and either gets cooked by yours truly um, for dinner, uh, or it sometimes gets sold to local pubs, restaurants, and to some of my friends. Yeah, and that that is the natural good stuff. natural cycle. Yeah. Am I right in saying that um, gutting it out in the field is called gralocking or something? It is. It is indeed. Yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> going to use that word because I thought everyone would think, "What on earth is he on about?" Um, I, I think from memory, it's a it's yes. a Gaelic word. Um, but yes, yeah, gralocking is the is the formal sort of term term for yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember that from an, an Irish deer man who told me. Yeah. Um, 
Cool. Well, look, and it's 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 during that process that you you are then inspecting the carcass, both for your own sort of health and safety in terms of checking that deer isn't infected or diseased in any way, but also looking at the general condition of it, because from that you should then be able to say, yes, okay, we've culled the right animal, or actually this carcass looks smaller, there's less fat on it than we'd normally expect to see. So are there, again, are there too many deer here? Do we need to be doing more? Right. Or are we about sort of right in terms of the right level? Yeah. Yeah. So it's all giving you information on the, the population. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I mean, I find this fascinating. I do hope that my listeners do it as well. Um, before we end, maybe let's uh, end on what some of them who might have uh, felt uncomfortable would see as a positive ending and, and talk about <laughs> the rewilding projects that you're uh, you're getting involved in. Yeah, yeah. So guys, please don't hate me. And I'm sorry if that was too graphic. But um, yeah, so the, the nicer side of me, um, I, I work as an estate manager for, for Savills, as I said. Um, and one of my clients is a sheep drove organic farm, um, which is a 2000 acre, uh, mixed organic farm, as the name suggests, uh, near Lambourne in Berkshire. Um, and it was bought by the Kindersley family in the 1980s, uh, who I, I don't think they'll mind me saying this started out as good lifers. So they started out, they, they bought a house and a few acres and their aim was to, to grow enough food on those few acres to provide them, um, with, enough sustenance for a family of four yeah um and basically it, it grew a little bit out of control as you can imagine from a few acres to 2000 um and that's a pretty uh, big leap yeah it, it is I, I in fairness it did sort of happen in stages but it's still quite a big change over time um they really took to the good life then they really did um and they've they've enjoyed every minute of it i think um and at one point they had pigs sheep cattle uh, chickens. Uh, I'm trying to think what else they had. So it was a very sort of varied, nice farm, and it, it's always been run incredibly ethically. Um, it's always been very, very strictly organic. Yeah. Um, and I, I think they've sort of reached a point where um, they say, "Well, we've we've done the farming side of things, and actually, the more we farmed organically, the more we thought, well, what would happen if we we take that next step and we just let we farm even more extensively, if you like." Um, yeah. And so they have taken the decision that they're going to rewild uh, some or all of uh, the estate. And, and as I said to you at the, the beginning of this podcast, we're we're now at the stage of drawing up plans of going, okay, well, what if we if we rewild it? What do we want it to look like in ten, twenty years? And it, it's a really yeah. strange process because you then work backwards from there as to how how you've got to get there. So yeah, they would quite like a sort of wood pasture um, habitat, which we think is, pr- is probably what. The, the land itself would support uh, and it's then okay well and it, it's quite scary because it feels a bit sort of finite it's okay well we now need to go around removing all the fences that we've spent years putting up and maintaining yeah we we need to change the the type of livestock we've we've got here we need to be planting more trees but also conversely we we need to remove nature for or certain elements of nature for a couple of years to allow those trees and, and some scrub to to take hold to regenerate yeah. And and this is where again sort of my roles kind of blur into one a little bit because one of the big problems we've got there is we've got fallow deer and we're going to need to find a way of removing them for long enough to allow enough trees to start self-seeding and setting. Yeah. Uh, in, in amongst some of the pasture. Um so it is it's incredibly it's an amazing process and I'm sure as I said to you we're going to make a huge number of mistakes but 
I, I'm really hoping we'll learn from it and it'll be an incredible experience. Yeah. Well, I think um, we definitely have a part two up our sleeves of this podcast because, as I said, we could uh, sit on here for another hour. But um, I think for our listeners' sake, they might want a break at this point. <laughs> so I was going to say, they'll be hunting me down on Instagram already and trying to find No, 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 no. I think yeah. you've done a fantastic job, I have to say, of, you know, um, explaining everything and, you know, talking about the logic and the ethics and the welfare and the reasoning behind this. And I hope that, you know, even if people do feel very passionately and strongly about animal welfare, that they've listened fairly and uh without kind of immediately jumping to kind of preconceived ideas of what it means or what it is to be a, a deer stalker um and the- yeah you've done a great job what i i'd maybe uh love to do is when uh restrictions allow maybe come and um have a visit to sheep drove and see what you're what you're up to there and then maybe actually go out on a deer stalk with you and, and see what it's all about because i think you know, if you don't embrace these things and, and learn about them and have an open mind, um, people can just end up being in one camp or the other and, and not kind of exploring those grey areas that we all kind of should be confronting. And I, I would love to, to have you both for um, a deer stalking trip and for a trip to Sheep Dave. And I, I was going to say on, on this podcast, if, if there is anyone who is really kind of still hates me by the end of this podcast, please get, please honestly get in touch. And I would be more than happy to take anyone out on a sort of very simple deer stalking trip and nothing has to happen if they don't want it to um and you can just sort of experience it and perhaps see how it happens and it it may just change your mind yeah i think that that's a great offer so uh do get in touch where can people get in touch with you tom um so we have got a website um so oxen deer um i can't remember if it's .co.uk or .com very unprofessional of me um or even oxendeer.co.uk i have it here in front of me there you go um or if not uh, you can find me on instagram at oxendeerlimited um and both both um portals uh, have my email address um so you can contact me through there Brilliant. Well, I hope there is no hate mail. I hope it's all good quality <laughs> conversation. Um, if there is, I know you're to blame. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It, um, I, ho- I was going to say it's brave. Hopefully it's not. I think we're all adults. We should all respect other people's views and we should all be open-minded enough to know that um, there are uncomfortable truths and uh, difficult conversations to be had in uh, in wildlife conservation yeah no thank you very much for having me on it's it's always amazing to um to have these discussions and as you probably gathered i i could talk about deer for hours on end so i i won't bore your listeners anymore um and no worries well thank you very no, much for having me no worries we'll organize that trip um thanks again tom and we'll talk soon yeah my pleasure yeah thank you very much sean no worries If you've enjoyed this episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast and you want to listen more, please, please like and subscribe on your uh, podcast listening platform of choice. It's on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. And if you want to support ongoing episodes of this, it's all coming out of my own pocket, the editing costs and things. Um, We would love any donation. You can donate through Acast or you can uh, donate through the Patreon link, which I will post in the notes um, attached to the episode. So it's over and out for me and we will talk again soon.